welcome, 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 welcome to one of 200. This is the independent politics and media podcast from New Zealand, where we talk about all sorts of uh, current events and kind of longer going political issues. You're here with just three hosts today, Justine, Branco and Philip, myself. And we're going to talk about vaccine stuff. There's been a protest in the news recently that was outside parliament and got a bit more, uh, I think it's fair to say, rowdy than some of the other um, anti-vaccine protests have been and had more people. It was in the thousands instead of the, the dozens numbers. Uh, so it, some people started taking it more seriously. But Bronco was about to tell us about a piece that he's just written on this and has a few positions on. So take it away, Bronco. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, you know, I, uh, for one, I, uh, while I do have some nominal sympathy to the position of the, of the anti-mandate people in a sense of, you know, in terms of protecting civil liberties, I think, uh, you know, it's not a great uh, thing to force people to, to get something injected against their will and to have something foreign inserted into their body. However, uh, if we look at what as a society, and not just in New Zealand, but but many, many societies all over the world, what we've accepted uh, as violations of civil liberties or, or invasions into, into a kind of privacy or bodily integrity uh, for the purpose of combating terrorism, which in New Zealand basically kill, you know, it results in next to no deaths. The only exception is the, the Christchurch shooting that happened, uh, you know, a couple of years back. And the reason that that was so deadly was because um, because gun laws were had these these glaring uh, gaps in them. Um, so beyond that, I mean, you know, uh, you're looking at maybe six terrorist attacks over the course of uh, 50, 60 years in New Zealand. Um, that, that was the most deadly one. The others killed at, at most, you know, one or a few people. Uh, COVID, on, on the other hand, has already killed 33 people uh, in New Zealand. It's killed millions of people worldwide. It, it can, by virtue of collapsing the health healthcare sector, it can lead to many more deaths because people aren't able to get treatment that they need for various illnesses. So it's a far more deadly thing. And so to me, you know, I, I rather than looking at it as a from the, the perspective of a kind of civil liberties absolutist, I look at this as a uh, on like a, a, again, the risk analysis. And yes, there's a cost to being forced to, to take something against your will, definitely. However, given the fact that we already accept all these violations, I look at what we're actually preventing. To me, the, the, the cost is, is worth it, even though, you know, I don't think this is a, uh, a policy that we should now accept in every single other facet. I don't, you know, I don't want this to lead to more drug testing for workers. I don't want this to lead to, medical experimentation down the line, you know? Uh, so that's one position. Yeah, my, my other point is just about how some of the, the ridiculous rhetoric around how this is a Nazi policy, which we can go on, we can talk about that a little later on, but that's not true at all. It's historically completely inaccurate. But I also, you know, I think we should, I think it's understandable the alarm that people are facing or, or, or feeling uh, from watching some of those sites and, and images that came out of the protest. But I think also we should try and keep things in perspective you know, to avoid kind of catastrophizing or overstating what what it meant. Uh, I think we need to remember that it came in the context of weeks of uh, people being, I mean, weeks and months of people being locked down in a very strict way, you know, stricter than a lot of the, the rest of the world when they locked down. Um, and, and it comes in the midst of a great deal of economic pain that the government hasn't really done very well. We've talked about this before. They haven't really worked very hard to protect people. I mean, what was the latest work and income boost? It was like twenty dollars a week for <laughs> for people. I mean, that's nothing. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I know the demographics of the people that went, and I'm sure not all of them were economically struggling. But I mean, you know, financial stresses do tend to make people react in, in certain ways. They tend to get people angry, and that anger doesn't always come out in very what we would think of as rational ways. It sometimes gets redirected. I mean, and that, you know, we can look at things like the Trump election as or, or Brexit as two really good examples where a lot of people's disgruntlement with things ended up uh, being embodied by 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 policies or or figures that. On the face, we don't really make a lot of sense, but kind of do on a kind of libidinal level, a gut level. Um, so that's sort of my, that's a little short version of, of what uh, my takeaways were from, from watching this. I think that's really insightful, Bronco. I agree with you in terms of the, um, 
your cost benefit analysis, I kind of see it as a bit of utilitarianism. And I think in like periods of crisis, uh, you kind of have to start um, making some moral and ethical calculuses, um, which is kind of difficult, I think, for people to accept. Um, because, you know, obviously, ideally, you wouldn't have to do that. And um, I think no one in an ideal world is saying you should be forced to uh, get a vaccine in order to keep your job. And I, so I, like, I just I think like that's important to like, just say that you know and to uh, acknowledge that and I but the I think the issue I run into with sort of the civil liberties argument and I, you know I do see people making it um and I don't think that's an argument that's just you know the sort of like conspiracy theorists and like far-right agitators like I think there are people who have genuine you know political concerns about the mandates on the left on the right all over the political spectrum I do think I mean I disagree with I I, I disagree with the conclusion, you know, any kind of anti-mandate conclusion just because um, the cost-benefit analysis just doesn't seem to add up for me. Um, and I think that you can't just look at these things in absolute terms, in like idealistic terms. I, I kind of think of it like a good metaphor for me is like if COVID, um, instead of sort of attacking your lungs and, you know, your it's being a virus, which is, you know, something that's unseen, if it were like um, a disease that made you just like punch people in the head constantly, um, <laughs> you know, um, and, and if uh, there was a cure or not a cure or something that prevented you from punching people like in the head all the time and you're like, no, look, it's actually just my choice. Um, I need to be able to come to work and punch people in the head and I need to go. <laughs> you know, this is my, like, it's my freedom of choice. I think, you know, in that scenario where it's not, um, like, it's not unseen, where the threat is actually, like, very physical, you wouldn't have quite the same debate around whether people have the right <laughs> to, like, uh, you know, take part in society when they pose such a, you know, a risk to others. So, um, yeah, I think, like, at the heart of it is a kind of, like, refusal to acknowledge the actual risk that COVID really poses in terms of, like, and I, and I, and I, the, I think that's where the heart of my disagreement comes with a lot of sort of anti-mandate stuff is, like, at the end of the day, you're not going to get 90% of people agreeing on anything. Like, that's, you know, like, that's how many, you know, like, that kind of consensus is, really difficult to reach on any I can't actually imagine any any issue where we could like on an on you know among millions of people so uh I think like on that basis it does make sense to me mandates because um I just don't know how you get there otherwise and um do we you know do people have the right to overwhelm the health system do people have the right you know like to to keep us in a pandemic for for, for years and and to allow further incursions on our ability to live our life I mean I yeah, for yeah. me, the answer is no. Sorry, yeah, it's, no. yeah, yeah. It's a like it's an interesting kind of friction between the idea of individual rights and communal rights. Like that's always how what we're going to rub up against when we've got this kind of liberal individualized notion of what we should be allowed to let happen and what we should not be allowed to let happen. Like in the past, we've I think one of two hundred has been pretty consistently very concerned with civil liberties um, on lots of fronts. Like after the terrorism attack, we had a uh, probably one of our more unpopular episodes where we were vocally anti-increase um, of police powers and spying, et cetera. And I think it's important to be consistent on that stuff. And I think, yeah, I like I like your head-punching analogy, actually, Justine, because it is like it's the same thing. It's communal risk from individual liberties, which is how we have to be thinking about this. And like I, I like Branco's terrorism one, but I just want to be clear that I'm sure what he's not saying is that we should accept the standard of uh, terrorist police powers and you know GCSB it's this kind of network of um, intrusion into our everyday lives and privacy as the standard to apply to everything like that's far above where we want to be for everything else and the amount of good that it does is negligible if any right so I'd, I'd prefer to bring down the level of terrorism uh, incursion onto our civil liberties to the same amount as a vaccine mandate which is minimal right it is it is bodily integrity as you say which is a really kind of fundamental thing in a kind of democracy that we have to treat seriously i quite liked the um new zealand council of civil liberties take if you've if you've seen that because they made quite a nuanced argument that it is justifiable but it hasn't been justified which i thought was quite like a smart way of thinking about it because the mm -hmm. legal the legal um test is is it justifiable in a free and democratic society that's the bora test the bill of rights act test 
Um, and they said, yes, it definitely is for the reasons that we've sort of talked about. Like we need to consider rights in a, in a framework of what harm we do by omitting or acting in various ways. So in this way, it's people choosing to omit to be vaccinated, right? But they say it hasn't been, they haven't, the government hasn't made the effort to justify it, which I think is true. Like they've not been part of any of these conversations um, with people who have, you know, there's only a tiny minority of people, but that's something that we should treat seriously, whether you can have reaction to the vaccine or be allergic to it or um, these kind of concerns that people have. And then there are people who are skeptical of vaccines more generally and have kind of more or less kind of struggling ideas or critical ideas or conspiratorial ideas about the health sector more generally and kind of big pharma and things of which we would be sympathetic to some and less sympathetic to other, right? Um, it doesn't have to be George Soros to be, you know, a scary international uh, profiteering conspiracy, which it is like it's part of an oligarchic international market trading system of medicine that we should fundamentally oppose. But the government decided to buy in to that system by, you know, not getting on the uh, people's vaccine stuff and not producing our own things. We are basically susceptible to the whims of big pharma at the moment. Um, and that's something that we should be allowed to talk about without being identified with these insane like this is the problem with disinformation right and the spectrum of kind of misinformation growing from a seed of kind of justifiable points which are usually there and then skewing out hugely so that's the connection to uh the September January capital riots thing because similarly there were like a lot of people there who initially there's always this very frustrating kind of liberal debate about like oh, what does um, economic anxiety mean? It's just a made up kind of cover to give people excuse for being bad or whatever. And I mean, I don't care if it makes them bad or not. I don't know what, like, what their morals have to do with anything, but I don't know. There's this weird like necessity to place blame on people. Um, Moralism, right? It's like a profound yeah. like piousness, like a self-righteousness um, instead of like, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's just yeah. like it is. Yeah, yeah. They, these people debate for years on Twitter about like whether the people are bad. Who who gives a shit about that? It's bizarre. Anyway, um, yeah, I thought Bronco's like connection with that was really opposite. And then it's so funny that in New Zealand, when we see a much, much smaller, much less violent, like, did you see that clip of when some protesters knocked down a fence, they put it back up again? That's that was amazing. <laughs> that was such New Zealand energy, right? We can't even do a like an assault no. on the capital properly. No, it was a very New Zealand version. It wasn't. Look, I don't think it was. You know, January six. It, it wasn't our version. But if you know, it came. It, I don't think it even came close. But if there were a version, I think they would put the fence up as well. I mean, I mean, January six itself was was not even the January six that people of the popular imagination. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It, it was. It was mostly there were some uh, people who had some very nefarious ends, and then a lot of people were just kind of wandering around, you know, defacing things or just kind of like walking around and not doing anything. But but in terms of the comparison of this event to January 6th, I mean, I think the people, what, what people in New Zealand and really around the world forget about this, this event is that the only reason that Jan 6th, the capital riot happened was because it was a massive and to be honest, an explicable security failure. Uh, they didn't have enough P uh, police out there to keep protesters out. The equipment they had was useless, like their shields that they had were like breaking and stuff because it was all this like outdated equipment. Uh, they ignored repeated warnings that, that, you know, there was going to be a mass of people coming in and some of them were going to try and storm, storm the Capitol. So if you're, if, you know, if you're, if you're worried about people doing that in New Zealand, you know, I don't think we're going to, our, our police, our security services are going to be uh, negligent or, you know, basically uh, uh, they're going to drop the ball like that. And I saw that, I think we saw that pretty clearly uh, with the response to this protest. I mean, what Trevor Mallard said that was, he'd never seen security like that in New Zealand's history. And as you say, I mean, whether the protesters were even going to do the things that people feared, I mean, given the fact that, yes, one of them picked up a knocked over barricade suggests to me that maybe that was not going to happen. Um, we have to remember that, Yes, there are scary messages that people are sending on Telegram and stuff. And people, you you know, in, in protests and when things get heated politically, 
people always use all kinds of overheated rhetoric. Uh, it doesn't necessarily translate into anything uh, for several reasons. Sometimes it doesn't translate into it because it's just talk and it's just people uh, using maximalist language. Think about the phrase, eat the rich, for instance. No one's literally out there trying to kidnap rich people and cook them and eat them. That's not happening. Right, it's, Bronco, it's just... don't chew <laughs> Well, aside from, I know what Justine's got planned, uh, you know, uh, but but I, I'd say probably the majority of people that you are posting those phrases, I think are not, you know, going to any cannibalistic vigilante groups. Uh, and secondly, <laughs> even if someone really intended to do that, uh, it does not mean they actually can. Um, just because, you know, I could say that I, you know, I, I, I'm going to take over uh, New Zealand and then, uh, you know, launch a military invasion in Australia and uh, suddenly own, you know, the entire South Pacific doesn't mean I'll actually be able to do that. It's, it's, it might be something I say, but, but it doesn't translate. So I think we should keep all that in mind. But the terrorism thing is funny to me that because to me, all the arguments that I think were quite fraudulently used to sell us on all these various rights violations to combat terrorism, I think actually do apply here, at least for the time being, because this actually is a once in a century, a very unique, exceptional circumstance. I mean, this is a pandemic, the likes of which we we have not seen in a hundred years. And I, I mean, I think it's probably safe to say that this particular virus is is, is worse than than uh, the 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 original, uh, you know, Spanish flu or whatever you want to call it. Um, so uh, maybe not in the death toll because we've responded to it better um, and we come up with a vaccine quicker, but in terms of its transmissibility and everything, much worse. So, you know, uh, I think it makes sense in, the, in this instance to at least temporarily for the time being, we're not yet out of the pandemic, to accept some sort of, uh, you know, unique, limited, exceptional actions, measures than what we would normally do. Uh, the irony is that, you know, when it comes to terrorism, I mean, terrorism is not an exceptional circumstance. There's always people want to do political violence or just violence in general all the time through history. This is not something new to the post-September 11 era. And so the way that that was sold to us, I think, was was kind of a fraud, really, um, because the fact is that, uh, you know, these were not going to be temporary measures because political violence never really ends. Um, and the irony is, of course, that, as you say, Philip, what has all this uh, uh, greater uh, repressive power among the government really done to, to predict us? I mean, it didn't stop the Christchurch uh, shooting, did it? Um, which is the, the the one job that they had and they let it happen. So, uh, yeah, I think those are, those are things that we should all think about as the, uh, as the days go on. Yeah, um, it's funny. I actually, I think, just going back to Philip's point about the government not really making the case um, for vaccine mandates, I think that's actually quite an important point, point in a way because I think it speaks to the fact that some aspects of the COVID response and just actually just like basic incompetence, to be honest, on the part of the government has contributed to what we saw at the protest and these like this mistrust, right, um, of our institutions. Because, I mean, we had like, a, you know, just a few months as the vaccine rollout was starting where the government, you know, said that they weren't considering mandates. And and so it's moved very fast. And even, you know, like at that stage, it was, it was interesting because, um, you know, if you follow the international, if you if you just know people overseas, like I kind of knew that that was rubbish. You know, I knew that that was just something they were saying at the time. And it was interesting to for me to then, you know, like see that that 180 that they did. And I don't think that's helped things. Like, I, I think that there's there's things like that that just haven't helped things. And yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right as, as well. Like, um, you know, I think that the, another thing that breeds mistrust is the fact that we you know, we're, we're in a genuine state of emergency right now. It is a state of exception where we have to accept some incursions on our individual rights to protect, you know, the collective. But we have also been lied to over the course of the last 20 years about things where there was, there, it was a, you know, hysterical response. It was a power grab by um, states and capital, basically. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, that has eroded trust, um, you know, like, you know, uh, this is a genuine emergency. And it's funny, uh, like people, some people just cannot recognize that. And I think it's because there's been a, a lot of fucking fake <laughs> emergencies, um, you know, well, not fake, but totally like blown up. 
blown up oh dear um (laughs) well but we know what you mean yeah Yeah. exactly right um so i think a lot of us comes down to um you know like the erosion of trust in our institutions that you know a situation they themselves created Mm. basically and i mean it was only uh what a couple weeks ago that we were talking about just just in terms of this particular emergency that that we're in right now how the government had kind of really uh hurt its own credibility by very abruptly you turning on its its own strategy and suddenly this the things that people had been told for the better part of a year and a half um this is how we're going to do things this is how we're going to get through this. This is what all of us have to do as individuals to be able to get through. Suddenly that was all kind of wiped out and we were given a completely different system. And, you know, uh, I, I can't say, of course, how much this would have played into what happened on uh, on Wednesday, but I'm sure it had some effect, this, this collapse in trust of seeing this government tell you one thing for a year and a half and then suddenly just go, actually, no. Don't worry about that. And, you know, maybe not unreasonably, some people went, well, hold on. I mean, if they they told us this in so, with such certainty for so long and then they just went back on it, then how can I really, you know, believe anything they say? I'm not justifying what these people are doing. And, I, you know, as I, as I said very early on, I think really their concerns are, are kind of, I mean, at, at best kind of silly, at worst completely like ridiculous and deranged um but you know i mean i think we have to understand that human beings are uh <laughs> affected by circumstances and external stimuli and uh you know that's that that all plays a role uh yeah you know i think it was even worse than they did a u-turn um they actually continued to lie you know for a period that they hadn't done a u-turn while doing a u-turn so you know i think that was a real moment if you follow, you know, I think this is, it's funny, but um, like, I think if you follow the pandemic response closely and I think some of the like outright uh, untruths that the government has been ta- has been saying, I mean, as someone who works in the healthcare sector um, about our capacity to deal with the outbreak, I mean, that in, alone in and of itself is enough to really black pull you. Like to an extent, you know, I was listening, like, I mean, and I'm someone who kind of believes in institutions. I mean, I'm not a fan of capitalism, but I, you know, generally believe in institutions. You know, I've been listening to like losing my religion a lot recently, <laughs> just like on repeat. Cause I, cause I've actually genuinely been shocked. I mean, you've got like the minister of health. Um, like, I mean, just in, like, you know, this is something that I know just from being close to the issue, like saying one thing about um, our capacity, for instance, to deal with COVID patients isolating at home. And then you hear from the actual healthcare workers on the ground about what is and isn't possible and how very, very clear they've made it from the onset that that this isn't going to work. And the the difference there is stark. And so I, I understand it. You know, like there is a lot of stuff to be angry about. There is a lot of stuff where we've been, I think, let down. There's a lot of politicking and spin going on right now and i think that that is creating a really fertile environment for disinformation um because you know like as someone close to the issue and you know i think like we have like and i'm not i'm not saying this isn't like a elitist thing but i think you know we have a high level of comprehension when we are engaging with the news and current events for people who aren't that like engaged or interested i mean all you get is the affect right the feeling you know like on some level you know but you can't, you don't have like, you don't have that big picture analysis just because, you know, you're not, you're busy. You've got other things in your life. You don't have time to be, you know, doing this kind of stuff like us. Um, and I think that that, you know, that just creates a real fertile ground for this, you know, these ca- disinformation campaigns and for people to take advantage of that. And uh, I think it's, you know, I think that's, I think that's really disappointing. And I think you do have to point the finger at power. Like, I think it's, it's not useful to like sit there and like condemn the people going, you know, like going to the protest, like, uh, you know, they're just civilians. They're, you know, some of them will be like really bad faith kind of committed activists. And that's one thing, but a lot of them were just ordinary people who have been swept up in a disinformation campaign and the, the soil that campaign grew in, you know, the government, that's the government that's on the government. Um, that that's on the you know the Arden the Arden government I think and it's important to say that you know yeah yeah and I mean it's not an impossible task I think is the other thing to remember like 
as you're saying, Andrew Little was talking up ICU capacity and an ability for people to isolate at home. And then there were deaths, like at home, using those exact systems. Within the week, there were multiple deaths. Yeah, so going on four, yeah. It's disgusting that, that people can just keep kind of bold-facedly having this inflated, yeah. It's, it's crazy to me, the deaths, because I've seen the sort of labour response, you know, because from and, and the defensiveness and it kind of goes and it, and it kind of goes back to that individual responsibility. Like, um, you know, obviously in the news, there was that horrific story about a man who um, had COVID and passed away at home isolating. He called, you know, the dedicated number that was supposed to be checking in on him to say he was coughing up blood and he was so ill they sent him panadol and uh cough lozenges you know and that is just such a negligence it is unbelievable negligence. it's grotesque yeah that should um, be enough to say that your system isn't what needs to happen like that that by itself should be it's enough in a small right? country like new zealand absolutely. to rewrite the whole thing from the ground absolutely up. no no seriously like like in a, in a like there would be an inquiry like if we actually valued people's lives and um lived in a just society like that's cr- insane but instead i see people saying well, well if he was so sick why didn't he just call an ambulance like why didn't he um no he was he was this this person and their family was doing what they were told and you know it's interesting to me that there's been like very few deaths in miq where you've got healthcare workers manning the place looking after people doing due diligence like that that system works and then you have like four deaths in the space of a few weeks with this new system and we're looking at individual behavior and not the system itself i mean i actually think that's literally victim blaming and i just have no time for it like this person died because of the negligence of the government and the, the lies about healthcare capacity. Um, and I yeah. think it's fucking disgusting. It's grotesque and disgusting, but um, I don't want to brush over that. But I think that is sort of the the other side of the coin to the disinformation conversation, because that, that victim blaming and individualization um, and always looking for a motive, like being interested in people's kind of personal beliefs and whether or not they're a good person, kind of this liberal individualizing instinct that people seem to have, especially kind of technocrats. Um, I, think that's, I think that's the flip side that's the sort of health version of the flip side that's been the conversation about disinformation because there seem to be a few different kinds of quote-unquote disinformation researchers or experts in New Zealand and one side like we had some really good people like Toa Toa going into primary schools and kind of connecting with communities and stuff that has a real kind of materialist element I guess they understand that communities are real things and they need to be brought together in order to work through complicated problems like understanding health mechanisms um, and that's really valuable. But there's a, also a kind of in- individualized type of people who come out with like reports saying, you know, disinformation is spreading. Well, what does that mean? Like once you drill down into that, a lot of it becomes kind of self-perception and a lot of that can be drummed up by drummed up by more kind of um, bad faith media, like, you know, counterspin or whatever. There are like uh, conspiratorial uh, shock jocks. And we've had that for a long time. Like is, is Mike Hosking promoting disinformation every day does it really matter what's in his head there's those kind of questions yeah so i just i think that's this that's a similar thing right we're interested in the the individualized kind of narrative versus the actual real life kind of ground community stuff and that's whether in health or in info or in information like data transmission like that and also as bronco said in terms of like defending ourselves as a community that that terrorism response that the that the government had was very kind of collectivist by its, na- by its nature and was very willing to impinge on individual rights to get that social cohesion right, um, which didn't get right, obviously. We way over blew it. But if you look at things in the same way, they refuse to do that here. And it's all about individual uh, capacity and presumably because of the economy, right? They need capital must flow, like the spice of capital must continue to flow. So <laughs> obviously, like that's going to be the priority, debts or not. I, I do wish that, yes, the, the protesters that were there on Wednesday had the same or similar level of outrage against, say, uh, the news that was that was literally just, I think, the, the day before, even the day of the event, that uh, police were getting uh, people that they arrested uh, to sign away the rights to their social media accounts and email accounts to give the police their passwords so that the police could go into their accounts and uh, you know, look through their personal data, uh, get uh, data from other people. Uh, and so, you know, that that to me is a very outrageous uh, uh, impingement of liberties. And, and we've seen that kind of stuff steadily happening um, among the national security state in New Zealand uh, 
for the last, you know, at least 10 years. I mean, everything that we do online essentially uh, goes into the X key score system that the NSA runs and that every five eyes government has access to, you know, so, so browsing history, searches, all that kind of thing. Um, all of us, you guys, my co-hosts, everyone listening to this, everyone, the people on Wednesday and, and our government has access to that stuff. Why is anyone pissed off about that? But okay. But at the same time, I also, you know, one of the things that has frustrated me about the, the, uh, the, the response to the protest is, is yes, it is that individualization that the blaming of people look, no one, very few, let's say, uh, New Zealanders liked what they saw on Wednesday. I think we can all agree that it was uh, pretty bad. Uh, it was a bad look. It was some very ugly stuff being said and and, and done. Uh, okay, great. We all agree on that. It's bad. All right. So it's bad, but what do we actually do about it? And is it really true that that you know that thousands of of more New Zealanders have turned into like evil terrorists? white supremacists over the, the the last you know whatever how many months or weeks since the last big COVID protest probably not so clearly there's something that is leading the the people of our country at least a segment of the population to uh, buy into some of this the, the the bullshit that they're seeing or or to at least become a little more predisposed and i you know as as we've talked about i think some of that has to do with the Labour government's own fault, uh, has to do with their their own uh, mismanagement of this um, and, and their own lack of ability to, to, to combat uh, and uh, some of these, these, this messaging and to put their own messaging through. Um, but there's also so many other things, I think, that, that drive this stuff. And I, I can't say what it is. I can, I can have a, a, a sort of a, an attempt to diagnose it, um, but, you know, what I wish that we had is a, a, an attempt to actually really look at what is driving people um, to, to, to take up this messaging. Because I suspect it's a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. I think it's, it's financial stresses. I think it's uh, the stresses of the lockdown. I think it's a, a, a collapse of trust. I think it's so many different things. I wish we had that because then we would know this is what we actually have to do instead of just saying these people are bad and we should um, treat them as terrorists, which is not going to solve anything any more than throwing criminals in jail is going to end crime. So I think like one of the hmm, things that might lead to some introspection is the diversity of the protests. You know, I think it's not so easy to just sort of dismiss the protesters as just white supremacists or whatever. I mean, there clearly is a base in our mo- in the most marginalised and disenfranchised communities. You know, to see the Tinoranga Tiritanga flag and the Hefakaputanga flag uh, <laughs> alongside the Trump flag, I, I think you, you've got to take a step back and take a deep breath and think, okay, what the hell is going on here? Because um, it's, you know, it's not so simple. Yeah, and I think, but I mean, like, you know, I so I guess, I, I guess I'm, I'm one of middle ground this though because, like, you know, I say, and we're saying all this and we want to diagnose like the root cause, but I will say like, I do, I do find the, the base of this protest quite troubling because of its makeup actually. Cause, um, you know, I do, I do think it's like a proto, you know, it is, this is what fascism, and I'm not saying this is like a scary, like fascist um, uprising coming up, but it is what you know, the base of fascism tends to, this is what people forget, like people don't, I don't think people, you know, because um, we're so historically illiterate um, and we just kind of want to make, I think, really uh, silly comparisons to, you know, like Hitler or Nazism or whatever. But I mean, you know, like fascism, you know, as is described is always a sort of a mixture between, you know, what Marx would call the lumpen proletariat and um, the petite bourgeoisie. And, um, you know, I do think you see elements of that in Trumpism, in right-wing populism. I think that is troubling. I don't think it's like, I'm not scared, <laughs> but I do think it's troubling and I don't think it bodes well. Well, yeah. it, it, it's symptomatic of, of a sickness in society and, uh, you know, what exactly that sickness is. And, and we've, we've put forward some, some contenders, but, uh, you know, that, that's how you get at this stuff. It's, you have to solve it. I think all this stuff about, you know, it, it's disinformation and it's, you know, basically we have to control the flow of information online because that's what's causing it. I, I don't think that's true. And I think you, you would see people 
doing this exact thing, even if you had, you know, clamped down, done some insanely authoritarian thing, like clamp down the internet and, and, and stop uh, the flow of messages. Um, because there's, you know, we forget about the underlying conditions that push people into to doing certain things. Um, so I think that's what we have to look at. I wish that was the discussion. I mean, I have been heartened that actually, at least among some of the, the newspaper uh, responses, that they have not taken a kind of histrionic over the top reaction that, that we I, you know, really saw in the press in, um, in the United States after the Capitol riot. Uh, because the, you know, the worst thing that could happen now is to uh, respond to this by basically uh, feeding into, into the Labour government's ongoing uh, attempt to centralise power to add to the government's um, repressive abilities. That would not be good. Um, and, and, you know, for anyone who has listened to this podcast, they... They will know this already, but you know, if you if you are not aware of the history, I mean, the the don't be fooled into thinking that the people that are going to get targeted by any sort of measures that are meant to stop the the, the events of Wednesday from happening are going to be the people that you saw on Wednesday. It it will be environmental protesters. It will be it will be Maori. It will be uh, people who, you know, maybe, maybe have Middle Eastern backgrounds, uh, or anyone else who's considered at any various time, uh, to be, uh, someone who, who does not fit into the mainstream of or what's, what's, what, what might be uh, described as the mainstream of New Zealand society. Um, so we should not go in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it's important to recognize, as Justine said, that it is like, it's a very troubling development and, to the to the extent that this shows some kind of um, fascist sympathies by kind of an incipient um, group of like discontented people, um, that makes it even more important to get at these causes, right? Instead of um, looking at individuals and um, diagnosing them <laughs> as bad people online, um, but you know, very intelligent, long-standing kind of journalists like Mickey Forbes. Um, have said that this is a very different type of protest movement than anything she's been near to before. And she's felt a lot more threatened as a as an openly media person because there's that kind of uh, open disdain for hatred for the media threats. Um, and that's felt has felt more real than previous things. And we don't have to, we're not discounting that by saying that the kind of narrative re- response to that hasn't hit the nail on the head. Like that it is a very troubling development and there's always the possibility of stochastic violence, like individuals take things too far. Someone could definitely hit someone yeah. in the head and, you know, well, do some serious already, damage. And I mean, that's already happened because Debbie Nawera Packer's husband got punched um, by someone at a vaccine site. So, yeah. Um, yeah, no, definitely not discounting the troubling nature of it, like the the, the violent rhetoric. Yeah. I, like, I think it speaks to like... I, I think, you know, I think, I think that does, I mean, that goes in, that segues nicely into um, the next topic of discussion, which is polarization, which I don't really, I don't like that word actually that much, um, actually at all. But yeah, I, do, I hate <laughs> it as well, but that's what everyone's talking about. So I think, yeah, I think we yeah. should dissect why it's bad. Yeah. Okay. I will. So yeah, totally. Um, but I do think it speaks to like, I think, I think people are pretty desperate on like all sides. I do. I think they <laughs> I just don't think you can discount how, um, like, like uh, traumatic uh, the past couple of years have been, you know, how difficult it is. I've, I said this at the time of the protest, and I'll say it again. Just send a, like, literally, if you want to make things just a little bit better, just send everybody $1,000. That's what you can do. It'll, it literally will improve the situation. You just take the temperature down, 1000 bucks. That's all you need. I'll, I've costed it out, you know. Just talk to, talk to me about it. Let's go. I mean, or or if she wanted uh, a more sustained solution, she could have implemented literally any of the supports she put in the yeah. first lockdown that was extremely popular across the board. You know, something like 70% of right-wing voters supported her first lockdown and the elimination in general was extremely popular. And it's only been since that, like, um, Bronco's right that we don't have enough data, but what we do have is a couple of polls that came out in the last week, both showing that Labour's, you know, continuing to cruise downward uh, Jacinda's popularity is just continuing to cruise down, but it's not crashing. She's still by far the most popular contender to lead the country, but it's significantly different from everything we've seen for the last year and a half. Um, so yeah, government losing support. That support has sort of split. The Greens are still continuing to do okay, which is interesting given they're the only party openly supporting elimination on the Māori Party, I suppose. 
Um, but also National beginning to cruise up. Act staying kind of kind of stable. Maybe they've hit a roof at about 15%, which is a scary, scary amount for a hard right party to be on. But, you know, so, yeah, I think it's interesting that it's only been since they've turned to suppression that that's been happening and it's been consistently happening. Well, what's, what's Act's one of their big things? that they want to open up the country, they're anti-lockdown. When, when you're angry about something happening in society, when you're angry about something uh, that, that, that is, 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 is running through uh, the entire country that, that seems to be taking it in the wrong direction, uh, you focus that anger on something that is happening to you personally that you can see and feel in front of you. For most people, that's the lockdowns. Most people, they don't... They, they have no conception that there's an alternative way to deal with the lockdowns than what the government has done. And so uh, for a lot of people, instead of saying, hey, why, why aren't you, while you're forcing us to stay at home, uh, do something, you know, you know, provide us with the financial assistance or provide us with, you know, frankly, kind of cultural assistance to, to get us through this period so that we're not just sitting in our homes uh, thinking about, are dwindling accounts and, and, and bored and losing our minds. Uh, for most people, they go, well, it sucks that I have to be in this house. It sucks that, you know, I've, I've lost my job or my business uh, can't be open. And I'm really pissed off about that. And so their anger gets taken towards the lockdown measures because that seems like the, the most obvious uh, target. And I think that's that's a lot of what we're seeing in this. And you know, unfortunately, if it, <laughs> I, I, we sound like broken records, but it comes down to the same thing that week after week we hammer here uh, at one of two hundred, which is that this government's uh, misguided and and politically based strategy of basically not dealing with any of the problems that it was elected to clean up, and instead adopting the uh, financial policies of the last government and and uh, making paying down debt the most important thing above the actual social needs of New Zealand it it, it a lot of this comes down to that I think a lot of the anger a lot of the, the reason why people feel like the government or the or the country's going in the wrong direction because when you had COVID at least when, when COVID was under control People were going, well, you know what? Everything else is kind of screwed up, but at least we got this thing right. At least we're, we're, things are better here than they are in the rest of the world. And that's not true anymore. And then meanwhile, you look around and everything, you know, the housing crisis is way worse. People are uh, in worse economic straits than ever. Um, and there's there's nothing really left for people to hold on to in terms of, of, of being happy about the state of things in the country. Yeah, I totally feel that. And, and and I think like what's really embarrassing is that our healthcare system is actually like so shit <laughs> compared to, to places where COVID has run rampant. Um, you know, like I think New Zealanders are going are in for a nasty shock, like the state of exception, because I do think we were in a bit of a state of exception for like, you know, we exceptionalism to be more accurate, is is going to really come down quite hard, I think. Um, because, you know, it's kind of, it's actually just kind of pathetic in terms of like the mismanagement of the health system by this government. And I think that's probably the main thing they actually need to be held accountable for when they've had such a head start in preparing for the pandemic compared to all these other countries. Um, and, you know, instead they chose to what, like do nothing, <laughs> I don't know, bolster, like, like they, they, cho- they chose to, bolster up MIQ, fight with the nurses, just just have a big fight for, like, a year, you know, <laughs> and get a few new beds in the ICU. Like, that's that's it. That's what they did with that time, with that head start. And I don't know. Like, that's, like, beyond mismanagement. It's, like, insane. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, it's genuinely you, insane. Yeah, and if you think about what the Jacinda mania was around in terms of actual policy, of which, you know, there wasn't that much in 2017, but she basically ran on what housing, health, environment, as far as I can remember, those were kind of her big progressive sounding, but kind of centrist reform areas that she wanted to look at. And the housing crisis has got a hell of a lot worse. That hasn't been slow. That's only exaggerated over time. You know, Kiwi is kind of irrelevant, but never mind. Uh, the health sector has been just screwed <laughs> the whole time. And they've had that since 2017. Like this, this government feels new because the labor supermajority is new, but they they could have done something in 2017 18 19 there was nothing nothing stopping them changing some of these things 
2020 was the year that they had a, they chose to fight with nurses. I'm just yeah. like they you know that's a that's labor. Bethlehem, that was labor. Right? That's on labor. They they had a big fight with the nurses. They were like no. I mean you you recall just into saying not everybody is yeah. going to be rewarded for their hard work during covid. Um when the nurses were like asking, you know, for like basic basic shit basically they had sorry i'm, I'm gonna go on about this a little bit so you know like they they've um they implemented a safe staffing kind of program in 2017 they actually just totally shit the bed like they just didn't they like only half of um the hospitals have have actually even set up the system never mind setting up the system like setting up the system just tells you how bad it is um it's not actually fixing the problem so um I, I just I don't really know that there's any excuse. I just I just can't. It's you know it's it's like it's actually just incompetent. Um, it doesn't make any strategic sense to me. Like uh, even if you are a stupid middling centrist, I think you I could you know like the logic here in a pandemic is let's put some money in the healthcare system. Let's get that up and running. Um, so I just think it's pure incompetence and hubris actually, like arrogance about the COVID response that they just thought they would cruise through basically. It it says everything about this government that they uh, the considerable political capital that they accrued over the election they spent on having a fight with uh, nurses and, and public sector workers more generally, and I think it says everything about just the liberal uh, order because this is not unique to New Zealand that you know this this once in a century health crisis has it led to even serious reforms in in these countries health sectors no absolutely not uh what it has led to is is increasing calls to you know control <laughs> the free freedom of information <laughs> to to clamp down on speech and 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 other political activity that's where uh you see the the kind of acceleration in both new zealand and and definitely in, in the united states um but really as it is both of both of these countries which have serious serious problems with their their healthcare th- that has not been addressed and that, I mean, if there is not a greater example of the, of the failure of this liberal order to actually do even the reformist things that it says it will do, I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. And just to um, round out that thought, I suppose. So housing, much, much worse. Health, much worse. Uh, environment, which was kind of her third platform in 2017. We were just named at uh, COP26 in Glasgow as the fossil of the year or something for doing saying the most to achieve the least on climate change. You know, I do think that sounds was, about right. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and I think that was, let's give a shout out to James Shaw because that really was quite embarrassing. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm really Punching about our weight, baby. I'm he really, loves it. He's so he like, <laughs> like yeah he does. He really is undermining. You know, I think he really undermines the the greens. <laughs> I, I really do, and I think it really shows like the folly of like oh we're going to go into government with Labour, which is going to make me real. It's like you know you're just embarrassing yourself. I mean, um, this is totally a segue. I just want to like shout out to him also saying to the school children suing the government. He was like yeah yeah that's awesome. It's great to be challenged. It's like okay, <laughs> dude, like. Honestly, what the hell is like? I actually wanted to be like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> it's such a strange. He's just such a strange man. He makes no sense to me. It's like, oh, I just wish someone would make me be bitter. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like well, I'm like that too. But you know, I try, well, bring you know, it, try the, not bring it into my job. <laughs> the classic apocryphal story when uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the U.S. was elected was that a bunch of union uh, leaders and, and and civil rights leaders met with him in his office and they they laid out all these demands that they wanted and what they wanted him to do. And, and he famously, and probably didn't actually, but he famously said, uh, I agree with all, with you now make me do it. Um, and, you know, which is more of a parable about like what, you know, activist movements, uh, movements should be doing and what their relationship to, to political leadership should be. Um, but, you know, in the case of James Shaw, like, is there any evidence that he's even like acting on this? Is he being, if the kids are doing their part to make him be better, is he being better? Doesn't seem like it. Well, that's the thing. It's like half the parable. It's like, make me do it. Oh, I'm still not going to do it, but thank you for trying to make me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's the parable with with James Shaw. The parable is, I agree with you. I'm not going to do any of it. (laughs) 
he just loves measuring he just loves measuring so much it's his favorite activity so as long as he can keep spending more time measuring measuring things like that was an onion article or something the other day that came out that was like uh man vows to quit drinking by 2050 uh starting starting in 2048 we'll make some radical changes to my drinking plan (laughs) when i'm 102 years old yeah yeah Um, i thought it was really good i mean that that uh report came out or oaa or whatever saying that James Shaw had asked uh, for a higher higher amount of decrease than the cabinet came down on, but it still wasn't enough. I mean, it still wasn't enough to do what he says the minimum is. So I don't know what, I don't know what a strategy Shaw, is. Shaw bravely demanded uh, half a loaf. Insufficient, and, yeah, and he got exactly. <laughs> and then got nothing. And, and, you know, as you do, that's how negotiation works, but whatever, that's how he seems to negotiate. Um, yeah, but in terms of like, polarization, whether it's party partisan or kind of values partisan. Um, we were talking about the kind of the confusion and valuelessness of the word polarization. Um, and yeah, I'm glad you said that, Justine, because I hate it so much. There was this kind of love-in on New Zealand Twitter where David Farrar started that thing of name a person from the quote-unquote the other side oh. uh, who you respect. Um, and I named Kyle because we disagree on some minor shit. So I mean, like on over what barrier, right? Like there is no centrism. That's that's the problem. Like there's no single pivot over which all opinions can be can be divided. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, name someone I disagree with. It's like for me, it's like any anarchist I work with. I love you so much. After, <laughs> after the revol- after the revolution, we have to have a bigger it's a bigger a story. conversation. It's a yeah. real it's the real political cleavage, I think. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. But so that's polarization, right? Yeah. That's the um, other side. The reason I hate that word is I think it suggests that it's just like magical. Like people are just like magically becoming uh, more ex- politically like uh, extreme or whatever. The, I don't even know. You know, I don't even think that word is really meaningful or useful, like extreme, because because like you know whatever center center is defined by its opposites, right? So I don't think it's helpful. Like the center is always shifting. Um, whereas like I think so, you know, it just it just doesn't get at anything. It's just basically like describing an affect rather than getting to any kind of analysis about what's actually happening and why people are responding in that way um politically um and i so you know like i think like uh i think alienation is a better word and um disenfranchisement is also another word i would want maybe like want to refer to um you know i think alienation though is is a good one um because i think that is more accurate to describe how people feel about the political system and how people are responding to the political system um and and I and I think it's it's really rich for these neoliberal technocrats, and that's what they are. And if you like, don't like me using that terminology, because some people are like, oh, it's too academic. Neoliberal, uh, you believe in like a top-down free market kind of approach, or where like capital, you know, reigns supreme. Technocrat, you just love managing shit. It's like from the top. Okay, it's not so complicated. But um, these neoliberal te- technocrats don't believe in democracy. You know, they don't fundamentally. They are anti-democratic. They want to manage people. They do not want people to manage themselves. And so, you know, they, you know, they ripped up society in the eighties. They fucking ripped it up. They fucking tore it up and and tore up the social contract. Um, destroyed communities um, and now they complain about the fact that they're you know like governing a void like that people are polarized that people are alienated um, uh, you know it's just it's just it's rich it's rich I, I think it's funny like um, yeah I was reading uh, they just they just hate reaping Justine yeah they hate reaping I just love sowing hate reaping <laughs> yeah Anton uh, Jaeger I think <laughs> made a really good point where it's like you know neoliberalism fundamentally i mean this david harvey actually makes this point like fundamentally it's just a class project it just wants to assert, like this that's cap capitalists wanting to be in control of the situation and to do that they had to destroy unions and they had to destroy civic society because that was the main you know antagonist right counter hegemonic counter force to their rule um and they did they did a good job they just like they they fucked they fucked us up real bad but in the process they ripped up society and now they're mad about it <laughs> mad that they ripped they did it they did it <laughs> well they're good and- so they're good a very important point about this whole uh talk of polarization because uh there, there already is polarization uh it's just it depends on how that polarization actually comes out uh in the u.s and this would be a very bad type of polarization to come to new zealand it's 
along cultural and political lines, partisan lines, I should say, uh, which, which uh, you know, hopefully does not come to New Zealand. However, if you actually look at the lay of the land, we are polarized. We're a polarized society between people who are working class and people who are extremely wealthy and, and powerful. Um, and I think it would be a very good thing for people to realize that, that you know, to, to be polarized in the sense of realizing that rather than um, having sort of cultural or social differences that, that, that those mean that, you know, they, they can't find anything to have in common with their, their neighbors or people that they, they live nearby or people who, you know, they work with. Uh, that, that, that it'll be great for New Zealanders to realize that, hey, actually, if you know, if you work for a living, um, you have a lot more in common with with people of a whole raft of different backgrounds than you do with someone who maybe shares some sort of, you know, ethnic or kind of you know social background to you, but really is 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 you know one of the, earning millions and millions mm. of dollars, and you know maybe has vast real estate holdings, maybe maybe owns a massive business. That that's you know not all polarization is created equal. Um, so you know, but I, I feel like that's kind of absent from the from the conversation uh, in New Zealand around polarization. That's actually a really good point. You cannot have Victorian levels of wealth inequality and then complain about a growing social divide. Like. Um, that's insane like yeah no it's um, material it's not like it's not cultural it's not it's not even necessarily political it's i mean it is political but um it's not just about people's ideas and opinions you know it's like um no it's the victorian level uh, of wealth inequality actually that's creates that social distance that you're talking about mm. you know what i mean like, exactly exactly that's so well put but it's so funny that as you said before that that's why it comes out in affect right because they don't want to talk about that undergirding kind of materialist nature of the divide they want to talk about how i feel uncomfortable when i talk to this person and they say something i disagree with and that makes me think they're a bad person like that's what the conversation becomes mm. right as opposed to all this kind of surrounding stuff but we should we should wrap up did you want to make a final point franco yeah, well, I mean, just just on that, I think also by that very by, by virtue of that very fact, uh, I think for for those of us uh, on the left, I think we should also keep this in mind. You know, when we think about people like 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 the protesters who came out on Wednesday, people who we we vehemently disagree with, who we think are misguided, wrong, we who maybe we even think have crazy ideas. Um, you know, uh, try to not import the the American culture war into our society and sort of just view these people as, you know, whatever, terrorists and extremists and try to understand what, what is it that led them to where they are. And let's try and work on fixing those things and actually making them come to see our side of things, the right side of things, the actual correct common sense side of things instead of what they've, uh, where they've ended up. So, you know, I think that's, that's instructive for us as well to take away. Yeah. And I think um, the other thing I've been reminding myself is like, I, I actually think at this stage, you know, like when you look at the opinion polls, like progressive ideas constitute a silent major majority, actually, you know, and that's a that's an untapped like thing that is a, a, should be a well of hope. It actually should, you know, even if it's not necessarily like we haven't realized that and, you know, it doesn't, you know, there's no um, political like a, within the mainstream political system, you don't see it. Um, because it suggests that, like, well, you know, the Victorian level of uh, wealth inequality has has created some, you know, consciousness, uh, class consciousness, um, as well as creating, obviously, a fertile ground for, you know, af the that affect to be projected onto other things like quasi-fascist conspiracy theorists, you know, conspiracy theories. So, um, yeah, I think I think it'll do well to remember that. Um, you know, and I think it's actually really cool to, to actually be in the, to be the real silent majority, because that was something the right wing always used to say about themselves. And in fact, it is us now who are the silent majority. So, yeah, that's really, that's really positive. I love it. The grounds, the grounds fertile. Let's go. And it's time for us to sow, right? The neoliberals have sowed and reaped. It's time for us to sow. Yes. Um, and I guess on a final kind of note from that, thanks to Manawatu People's Radio, NPR, they're playing us on Monday nights these days. Um, so if you're listening on there, thanks thanks to everyone who set that up. Uh, we'd appreciate any more kind of partnerships with community radio stations. If you know anyone in that kind of sphere, give us an email, um, drop us a line on Twitter or whatever. We'd love to sew, sew in all the different corners of Aotearoa or around the world, I suppose. We're sewing everywhere, baby. All right, thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Justine. Thanks, Franco. 
that's been one of 200 for another week we'll catch you next time relentless routines the dying embers of your dreams is the lie aspirational will you die keeping your glass half full the relentless routines the dying embers of your dreams is a lie Keeping your glass up full You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism